Isabelle Huppert and Kim Min-hee star in Hong Sang-soo's Claire's Camera. The two actresses are so charismatic, says Movie Notebook. Their stilted attempts to communicate are something quite surreal, if not magical. Claire's Camera opens March 9th exclusively at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital producer. There's always the myth of the great lost film, made even greater by the fact that no one can watch it. Bill Gunn's movie, Personal Problems, lives up to its myth. And with an upcoming run at Metrograph and other venues around the country, you can see it for yourself. Written by Ishmael Reed and shot in 1979, Personal Problems stars Vertime Grosner as Johnny May, a nurse's aide at Harlem Hospital who's having an affair behind the back of her uptight transit worker husband, Charles, played by Walter Cotton. Her family life is further complicated by her elderly father-in-law, Father Brown, who still tries to hustle like a young man, and her half-brother, Bubba, who gets arrested for being an accessory to a criminal his wife had been sleeping with. Reed described the movie as, quote, an experimental soap opera, end quote. And it has an epic quality, despite being grounded in Johnny May's everyday concerns and playing out in real time. I spoke with Toby Hazlitt. I've written for Art Forum, N Plus One, The New Yorker, Harper's, and elsewhere. About this distinctive work. What is your familiarity with Bill Gunn's work prior to this restoration of personal problems? My familiarity is pretty much what most other people's is in that I know that he acted in Losing Ground, a film that I love. I know that he made Ganjan Hess. Like most people, I haven't seen Ganjan Hess. I know that it's essential that I do so immediately, um, but I haven't. But yeah, I'm aware of his vague silhouette. Um, I know that he was something of a polymath. Um, I haven't read his novel. It seems like the sort of thing I would like, um, and I hope too soon. <laughs> but yeah, mostly I know him as the captivating performer in Losing Ground. Yeah, I, and I enjoyed his small cameo role in Personal Problems as well. Because mm-hmm. I feel like Personal Problems is actually very connected to um, something like Ganja and Hess, and from what I can tell, Stop, which is this x-rated film he did you know there was this sort of like uh, landmark year for black directors in hollywood where there was um the learning tree uh ossie davis's cotton comes to harlem and bill gunn's stop which was x-rated warner brothers shelved it immediately has it has never been seen but judging from a very negative variety review the one time it screened after his death of course it's like insufferable variety speak but it's basically like oh yeah it's like this really intentionally offensive like mixed race wife swapping uh homosexual bisexual sort of a thing oh it's so passe that's like buddy what are you talking about this sounds incredible and you know stylistically it's like sort of jumping all over and the first you know quote-unquote episode of personal problems really does sort of jumble up this uh the chronology of the the main character um johnny may and you don't really understand until the second episode that what order everything actually happened in. So could you talk a bit about like formally, because it is a real avant-garde work. What struck me was generic confusion and that I wasn't sure if it was a documentary when I first started watching it. Yeah. This is also something that I thought was relevant to Losing Ground, which was the 
low budget actually becomes a character in the film itself, or yes. you can see the director and the cast all rising to the occasion and also working alongside what are obviously very modest means such that the kind of low, somewhat grainy video quality ends up giving the first part of personal problems, which looks like a standard, not talking head documentary interview, but a standard kind of front facing documentary interview. It gives it a much more intimate feel in a way that actually almost <laughs> erodes its fictionality. Like mm. you just assume that Verda Mae Grosvenor, who plays Johnny May, is giving you an account of her actual life. Yeah. And only through the gradual, very jaunty, but still at the beginning, relatively sparse introduction of more stylized shots or more obviously constructed compositions, do you realize that what you're watching is actually a work of fiction? Mm -hmm. I think what's interesting to me about that is also the burden of representation placed upon black creators in general, mm -hmm. that the, the responsibility to be representative is such that everything is held to the standard of a rigorous realism, mm -hmm. usually with the intention of immediate political restitution, or at least political legibility. But the idea that it moves from what we take to be a grittily realist account of a nurse's aide's life at Harlem Hospital and then moves into her discussions of her life in South Carolina and then moves into her reading her poetry. And then all of a sudden you realize the editing is getting much more complex. Uh, you realize the shots are lingering, not just because the cameraman is an expert, but actually this is an intentional mm -hmm. discipline they're training in you as a viewer. And you re you're eased into what we think of, and this is just my opinion, we are eased into many avant-garde tropes and techniques, but it begins with the grainy video footage. Um, that, that, I thought that was very striking. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I think what you just said is very crucial because Bill Gunn was really among this first generation that today are sort of being reclaimed, but for a long time did not get written about. Like the, there is a real poverty of scholarship of the black arts movement of which, you know, people like Bill Gunn, Kathleen Collins, St. Clair Bourne, a lot of people were a part of and very active in building these communities. And then just kind of like nobody wrote about it and it sort of got forgotten. And now there's like this second wave of firsts, you know, this is, you know, the notion that Black Panther is the first black superhero movie. And it's like, no, it's not even the first Marvel black superhero movie. <laughs> it's like this ridiculous that like people sort of forgetting, but then also just not having not being able to build off of that sort of rich tradition is really unfortunate. But as you're saying, yeah, the way in which the the kind of the crappiness of the video and the kind of ghosting effect, there's definitely like a connection to other international art movements like um, Cinema Novo, this like uh, cinema of hunger, cinema of poverty, and like really embracing that low grade quality because this was made with national funding for the arts uh, nea money was going to be published it was going to be run on pbs and then it wasn't but it is such a document of new york in that time and i'm also thinking of you know sort of this the fiction coming up against this documentary feeling of when Johnny Mays with her friends at they're having brunch at some restaurant and you know they're all drinking white wine and they're all kind of laughing and having a good time and then not being shy about having a good time in public and then there's this shot of this white guy sort of lingering in this door frame and he's like glaring at something and you immediately wonder is he 
mad that they're too loud or is he just looking at someone else or is this sort of like a commentary on like how black people are kind of can't be in public in a certain way you have to behave and you have to change your behavior and be in a certain behave a certain type of way like it's really rich and there's so many like just really quick moments of like totally genius shit in this yeah one thing that i was wondering in that moment was if the white guy standing to the side had registered the camera equipment. Obviously yeah. it's not made explicit, but I was just like, what kind, what exactly is being punctured by this guy's look? Yes. Uh, is it the fourth wall or is it just a kind of, <laughs> within the fiction, is this a kind of sociological thing? I mean, it, it, it yeah. seemed like he wasn't an actor. Um, and I was like, to what extent is your role as a white non-actor <laughs> impinging <laughs> upon the action here? And it yeah. is marvelously indeterminate, I think. Yeah, no, I love that scene because it captures the rhythms of everyday speech so well. Yes. And yet it also is remarkably efficient at telling you things that you need to know. And that was something mm -hmm. that was in the Howard Hampton piece. But it is true. They cover a lot of necessary <laughs> exposition. Yes. But with humor and something that, again, I, I brought this up earlier and you were talking about third cinema, cinema novo. I think those are quite clearly the antecedents for the style mm -hmm. but what it made me think of even though it'd be anachronistic to say that uh, Bill Gunn is influenced by them but I do think that there's a weirdly strong affinity between personal problems and Dogman 95 stuff mm. not just because uh, I mean obviously Bill Gunn's movie violates a lot of the Dogman 95 rules but I think about a movie like Julian Donkey Boy and maybe this is a perverse analogy, perverse <laughs> parallel to draw but a movie like Julian Donkey Boy where so much of the texture of human relations seems to register itself in the video grain. Mm -hmm. And you realize, I mean, I think that this is a much better film than Julian Donkey Boy, quite frankly, but <laughs> I, the way that the shot lingers on a single scene and doesn't deviate, I think is kind of incredible. I mean, it, it demands real dedication. And in any other filmmaker's hands, I think this would maybe elicit something of a grimace if I were, but, but actually the actors are so vivid and the talk is so almost eerily fluid oh, yeah. that you realize and the movie is just built not out of quick shots back and forth or of the kind of artificial whipping up of narrative action but in the first episode and everything is still kind of temporally jumbled it's just long scene then long scene, then long scene, then long scene. And you realize that you're actually just like staying within the moment mm -hmm. or narratively you're forced to experience time more or less as it's being lived in a way that I found was almost slyly experimental. Like it didn't feel like I was being subjected to some right. extravagant formal exercise and yet I was and it was very effective. Yeah, no, and I mean, that's what I really appreciated about this too is that, you know, Ishmael Reed has described it as like an experimental soap opera. And it kind of is that because it is very grounded in these very everyday types of struggles. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion about how am I going to pay my bills? I'm unhappy in this place that is made out of concrete and buildings and steel. And I would rather be back at home in South Carolina and the Fusky Island and sort of be around nature in a way that I am not here. And, you know, some of the most liberatory moments or moments when you see Johnny Mae really happy are when she's at Inwood Park. It's like a fantasy world almost, you know, light enjoyable in a way that most experimental films are not 
when they say that they're playing around with a soap opera form and then they don't sort of do the work of making the narrative this engaging and like rooted in real problems you're like okay well <laughs> I can't, I'm spacing yeah. out I'm, I'm I want to leave I'm falling asleep <laughs> you know or even like the in the second episode the wake when you see Johnny May go from someone who is being attacked to like not living up to her wifely daughter-in-lawly duties to attacking to forgiving everything has so so much in it like it 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 is very extended just sort of staying in the moment but again these are all things that could have been dragged out even longer these all could have been single episodes of a soap when i read the ishmael reed quote about it being an experimental or meta soap opera the first thing that sprang to mind was the introduction that Renata Adler wrote in 1969 to her first book, a collection of her New Yorker reporting mm. called Toward a Radical Middle. I have a lot of <laughs> quarrels with the book. I think the writing is incredible, but her positions are not exactly um, compelling sometimes. But what's interesting to me about Renata Adler's introduction to that book is that she... I mean, this is a book that collects her reporting from Vietnam. I think this is also a book that collects her account of the Civil War in Nigeria. And reading it in 2016 or whenever it came out, it seemed like a very typical complaint that actually the world of politics or at least the representation of life that we get from the media and the hypertrophy of images and words that addle us and seem to disorient us on purpose. Mm -hmm. Um, this seems like a very standard late sixties complaint, especially with the, you know, hyper televised Vietnam war. But the interesting thing is that Renata Adler, in order to assuage her worries, finds that she's watching soap operas more than ever before. I mean, this is Renata Adler, hyper-educated, mm -hmm. um, impeccable taste, has worked as a critic for a long time. She's just like, I realized that soap operas are the only thing with which I felt some sort of continuity being acted upon, always. That the value of the soap opera is that despite whatever jagged or unthinkable event has completely recast the world of current affairs that the soap opera is always kind of purring along and what's interesting about that is that if you were <laughs> i was like what else is always purring along <laughs> besides the soap opera um and quite frankly it's it's obviously the lives of people who are powerless i mean yeah. like the the little ripples in the superstructure do not to an exorbitant amount affect the base not that these people are in a kind of marxian framework necessarily the base mm -hmm. but what you see is the way that history pokes into their lives and yet doesn't over determine it yes and you get this weird sense of continuity i mean just to just to frame it in the most vulgar historical terms the movie's made in 1979 or it comes out in 1979 i'm not sure when Johnny May and Della came from South Carolina, but they were the last generation to come in the Great Migration. I mean, yes. this is also part of a long historical narrative that would fundamentally change the shape and demographics of this country and alter its political fate <laughs> irretrievably. Yeah. Um, and kind of like in James Baldwin's Go Tell on the Mountain, the Great Migration is seen as a matter of individual choices and individual memories and kind of solitary motivations and yet they take place against this backdrop of incredible shift yeah. an incredible like a revolution in circumstances um and i i think that there's something about the pacing of personal problems that allows for that in spite of the moments of real 
frustration and anger, and especially in the hospital scene, emotional intensity and political outrage, you recognize this as part of a vast process that includes all sorts of anonymous people to whom these Black people feel varying degrees of affinity. I was very struck by when the somewhat caricatured white leftist is in the club and starts screaming at everyone about how they're oppressed, how he's given up his life and he's wearing an African necklace because he went to Africa to fight in an actual revolutionary movement. Mm -hmm. And Ishmael Reed, himself a politically contentious character, Mm -hmm. is sitting there and says, you know what, I voted for Reagan because he's going to clean the streets (laughs) up and make hippies cut their beards. And I was just like, I was like, I actually, in some ways I found the scene kind of illegible because I was just like well, the thing is that Ishmael Reed is like a little bit of a curmudgeon and it's <laughs> difficult to tell exactly the degree to which he's putting this on or how much pleasure he's getting from being vindictive in this way um but but again I, that's like a great soap opera move right totally. where it's like this guy who we all kind of know as a character is mm-hmm. playing a different type of character yeah. this Reaganite who hates yeah. hippies and yeah. I love it <laughs> I loved it <laughs> that he manages someplace like the like doggy heaven yeah that's <laughs> so hot dog. like he's a hot dog stand entrepreneur but i love the party scenes in them too because there is like this sense of cosmopolitanism that is because so many times in conservative arguments in this country it's like well poor people well where did you get those shoes how do you have an ipad and your own food stamps it's like poor people can have nice things and this is poor people. You get to see like lower middle class people having nice things, getting dressed up, hanging out with musicians, talking about poetry, talking about art. It's a really refreshing sort of look at, again, you know, Howard Hampton refers to it as sort of the quote unquote invisible people of this country. And the richness in which it is told definitely makes it more than just like, oh, this is a really valuable anthropological, you know, yeah. it's really valuable. It's like, no, this is like, it's just actually saying something more than just airing out grievances, let's say. Yeah, and part of the reason that they are, in his phrase, invisible, is not because they're Black or they're not rich. It's that they're not absolutely destitute. I mean, they, yeah. with the exception of the uncle and aunt who come to stay. Or Bubba. The, bu- bu- Bubba and his wife who come to stay. <laughs> These are people who mostly conform to normal middle-class values, whatever their Mm -hmm. circumstances are. And it's interesting to see the way that they strain to conform to that. Um, Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but what really struck me in this really beautiful scene early on in the film when Johnny May is standing by the man she's having an affair with, he's playing a song on the piano, but the refrain, and and tears are rolling down her face Mm -hmm. as he's singing this kind of extraordinary song to her, but the song is about being one-to-one. But it, and, and, and the refrain recurred so many times over the course of that scene, again, because of the narrative economy and the pacing is kind of languorous. Um, but he just kept on saying one-to-one, one-to-one, one-to-one. And I was like, mm-hmm. he, he could have been singing any song, but clearly it was vital, maybe even diegetically, that everybody just have the idea of parody just like drilled into their heads just like i mean this is like the fantasy of parody of more or less like fully integrated personalities in a kind of impossibly egalitarian relationship who feel like they're 
in interior lives are continuous with one another's. And that's the kind of fantastical moment. Obviously, it's problematized in many different ways. Uh, there are other party scenes that are like much less humorous and actually mm-hmm. kind of crank up the tension. It reminds me of these debates that went on early in the Soviet Union and Trotsky basically lashing out against the notion of prolet cult. And he's like, actually, we don't need a proletarian culture that valorizes uh, the supposed values of this class. Obviously, proletarians are the class who work for the abolition of themselves. That in a truly egalitarian society, you not have to cling to the particular marks, which are marks of your oppression. Um, that actually we can strive towards a truer art or an art that faces the world with more honesty, that doesn't reside in ideological incrustations that actually were passed down to us from the czars. And obviously the debate is one that was picked up several generations later in the 60s um, by people all over the world, Mm -hmm. wondering the degree to which the art of the oppressed should actually trade on tropes that the oppressed were familiar with, whether it should banish them as a matter of course, and then people like Black Arts, and I mean, Amir Baraka in poetry, I think, mm-hmm. is the most famous exemplar of this. You take the jazz form or the blues form, you take the form that emerges from below, and you splice it or convert it or hold it up to the same intellectual standards, though obviously with different political objectives, to white avant-garde. And you end up with something that happens to not be complacent, but is also more or less true to the demographic that you're talking about, or that addresses itself exclusively to them. And that's kind of how I felt about this film. Obviously, Black Arts is a literal connection. But yeah, the degree to which it could be angular and it could be kind of difficult and it did make political gestures and even its wistfulness I think is difficult to fully appreciate if you don't already have a sense of what black history in America was like or what it was like to be black and a woman around the time of black power I mean when they're gossiping outside and they're talking about her braids and her dashiki and one of them says remember the revolution and then they all start <laughs> laughing I mean that's I, I, that's an amazing scene yeah. in cinema yeah. Um, yeah but I was like but also they're they're working this kind of amazing middle ground mm-hmm. a middle ground that also seems to relate to the class position of the people in the film yeah that like at the end of the day these are not lumpen proletarians. Um, these are people who have worked very hard. In fact, the thing keeping Della in New York is the fact that, you know, she's worked hard for what she wanted. Ultimately, it's not enough. It is just enough for Johnny May to stay. She says, I don't want to lose everything that I've worked hard for. Mm-hmm. Um, there isn't much heroism in the classical sense to that phrase. And yet... There is an emotional state which is very sociologically particular and for that reason compelling. I mean, it seems to fit in precisely with how the film proceeds. Just like, you know, it's a bit strange, but ultimately it's life being presented at more or less the pace that it's lived. I feel like what sort of helps distinguish soap operas from narrative films is that aside from duration and aside from you get to sort of play around more in a soap Johnny May really doesn't change. Her husband also doesn't change. They maybe come to an understanding of something that maybe something in their life needs to change, but they don't make that change. Like certain obstacles are removed. Father Brown, (laughs) the amazing Father Brown, passes away. And Johnny May says goodbye to her musician lover, maybe. 
but nothing actually changes. Like they are still sort of like toying with this idea of like, well, maybe let's go to Chicago. That's where the blues still lives. Yeah. That's such a ridiculous dream, but they're not going to go. Like you almost yeah. know it's like, you're not going yeah. anywhere. Like you're already just barely getting by here. Like the idea of picking up and going somewhere else is not going to fix any of your personal problems. <laughs> <You know? laughs> what did you make of her husband? Yeah, he is a kind of extraordinarily castrated figure. Mm-hmm. He's, I mean, he's castrated by the plot in a way that is interesting and, yeah. and satisfying, actually. Mm-hmm. But it almost seems as if he's a kind of incredible display of metafiction or self-reflexivity. He knows that he's a supporting actor in this drama. <laughs> um, and and I, his character manifests that in all sorts of ways. Just the willfulness of his wife and her readiness for confrontation mm-hmm. seems to astound and frustrate him every single time. And yet he seems to be painfully aware of the fact that he's meant to shrink into the background mm-hmm. as a kind of sociological accessory that makes the story believable. The 70s were an interesting time in terms of Black cultural production because Black power ended in the early to mid-70s. And then, and it depends on how you periodize this, and I'm sure that uh, there are many people who disagree precisely with the dates, but it shifts into cultural nationalism once the actual political project has been defeated. And from within cultural nationalism and also outside of cultural nationalism, the roots not only of black feminist resurgence, or as Alice Barker would say, a womanist movement, cultural nationalism as a specific kind of black parapolitical formation takes root seriously in the mid-70s after the explicit failure of black power. Mm-hmm. What ends up happening is that a lot of the admittedly patriarchal diktats of cultural nationalism are challenged not only in the political realm or in the intimate realm but also in the cultural realm that i mean this movie came out in 1980 was made in 1979 or before that Mm -hmm. i mean we are transitioning historically from a time of male artistic dominance within whatever part of the african-american community is actually represented to an avowedly feminist or womanist tradition. I mean, June Jordan is already do, is already writing things. Kathleen Collins will make Losing Ground in a few years. Toni Morrison is ascending. I mean, she's already working at Random House. But the interesting thing is that embedded within personal problems narrative is a tension as to the roles of men and women, not in the revolution, but in American culture as it's understood. That you can kind of sense within the husband's resentment the feeling that he's being sidelined not only within his family within the narrative but also that there is a new protagonist emerging in the american drama and mm-hmm. it's not him that it's right. actually his wife and so he's he's really petulant he's not just aggressive but there's a resentment that he in some ways doesn't really seem to be entitled to mm-hmm. um and he's always shrinking back and threatening to say something that he never ends up saying <laughs> yes. i mean he's a uniquely powerless figure yeah. and it's just interesting because ishmael reed himself who wrote the script would famously lash out against the black feminist or womanist movements mm-hmm. yeah no i mean that's what's interesting is that this is a very sympathetic portrait of 
womanhood and black womanhood specifically, but it's crazy that it came from him considering his sort of legacy as someone. And I mean, he's rightly pointed out that, you know, somebody like Philip Roth, he's a misogynist, but you could still sort of have him in your class and it's Mm -hmm. fine. It's acceptable, but not, not his works. It's not necessarily venerating Johnny May, but it's it's very much giving her space to be herself. And all of the men in the film are just telling her, I don't like how you behave. I hate how you behave. You don't seem to understand that about me. But she never changes. She is allowed to be herself. And in the end, she's not punished for it. She chooses not to change. And that's like where her strength comes. And like you kind of know that She'll never be truly happy, but she will survive. She will continue to be herself. And that's like a, a triumph. And I think that that comes across so beautifully in, as I said before, the rhythm of the speech. Because mm-hmm. the camera lingers on an argument for the entirety of the argument, yeah. it doesn't proceed with a facile sense that... People are sorting things out, proceeding from the solution to yeah. some new vista that will result in a denouement. <laughs> but yeah. no, you sit for the entire argument. You watch the tides turn. You mm-hmm. watch people acting remorseful. Mm-hmm. You see people apologize. And you see the entire scene resolve itself into more or less the same picture that was there before. I think mm-hmm. the most incredible instance of that is when an older uncle tells Johnny May's daughter, those are some shapely tights you're wearing. Yes. Which, by the way, I'm just like, shapely tights? Okay. Um, but uh, <laughs> when the older uncle says, those are some shapely tights you're wearing, and Johnny May gets extremely mad, rather than have this be a triumphalist moment of motherly protectiveness or righteous feminist outrage, both of which are completely valid mm-hmm. options in real life, what also occurs in real life is that people back down from their principles and or defuse their own anger because the situation demands it. And you actually see this happening and you Mm -hmm. see him, they get into an incredibly pedantic, but still compelling conversation, (laughs) which results in her saying, I'm sorry, I called you old. And then, you know, the daughter's just standing there, more or less an object of the (laughs) the adult's disputation. And I was like, this this is symbolic and precisely the right proportion, but also aggressively non-symbolic and precisely the right proportion. Like, this is exactly what it's... I mean, not to go too far with this, but I mean, the degree to which that scene is allegorical and that it's just like older woman, younger woman, man, protection. The way that the the moral geometry of that is figured out, and yet it resolves itself into banalities and back padding they and both get a of, kiss on the forehead yeah exactly <laughs> yeah and, and 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 just and uh, a kind of unsatisfying but in a weird way relieving resolution mm-hmm. um it, it's what it's like to embody a social role that yeah. in some way you feel yourself to be abstract or you know that you have an affinity with a kind of person and you have to in some ways assert that or that identity is forced upon you and you're you kind of rise to the occasion and then you just slump back into what you understand life to be well, like. Also, yeah, or just that you have to like live with these people. You have your ideals and then you have to fucking live with these people. And then also that moment takes place at a wake and sort of, you know, what happens to people 
that you're very stressed out. You have all these people in your house that you have just had a death in the family. You're dealing with those emotions. She just got accused of like not taking care of her father-in-law properly, not administering his medication. He died from complications from his medication and like just sort of reeling around and then, you know, just being like, well, fuck it. I'm just going to mask off. I'm going to go in. I'm going to tear this guy apart. Wait, no, I really didn't mean to do that. This is not the time to do that. I'm sorry. It's a very empathetic thing because she's not a villain in any way at any moment. And the way in which she just sort of gets like, shuffled off by her boyfriend is really unfair it's really unfair because it's it's he's he's like this promise of of romance of something more naive and sweeter about romance and yet their last interaction he's just like get out get out very theatrically and he doesn't he doesn't want her anymore like she still has a purpose for him but he doesn't have any purpose for her and it's really sad Isabelle Huppert stars in Claire's Camera, the latest delight from South Korean master Hong Sang-soo. Huppert plays Claire, a schoolteacher on her first visit to Cannes who encounters Man-hee, played by Kim Min-hee, recently fired from her job in film. Together, the two wander the seaside resort town, working to better understand Man-hee's firing, while also learning the power of images to transform us. A Cinema Guild release, Claire's Camera opens March 9th exclusively at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. So Kathleen Collins' uh, Losing Ground was recently restored and after after showing for like one week in 1987. And and you watch it and you're like, why did this ever go away? This is an incredible film, but please. Maybe this is just my prejudice, but I think that the class question has a lot to do with it, Mm. which is that these are not extraordinarily successful, well-capitalized filmmakers nor are they a caricature of the voice from the street. Right. That they actually scramble our understanding of race and its entanglement with the economic caste system in this country <laughs> um, that doesn't slot in comfortably with liberal narratives yeah. and also doesn't conform to conservative stereotypes. Mm-hmm. But what you see is somebody who, in Kathleen Collins' film, you see somebody who actually... She comes from a well-educated background. Her mother is an actress. Mm -hmm. And she herself, through the meritocracies that were newly open to black people and newly open to women, Mm -hmm. I think more crucially, um, has found a way to become an academic. Something that I think is important and which I hope is not too much of a tangent is the degree to which, but in both personal problems and, and in losing ground, an institution plays a rather prominent role as a character. Not that mm-hmm. the entire of the action takes place within the institution, but Harlem Hospital, which is named as such. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the portals through which we enter the action, and you see people folding their lives into their institutional obligations in the same way that the story of a black female intellectual in the 80s is necessarily bound up with the academic power structure that she has somehow managed to gain. She has students. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's teaching Electron Sartre on the first day and she's doing summer research and she needs her books. And you can see the ways in which her so-called frigidity has everything to do with entering herself into an entire social world and 
exactly emotional vocabulary that's wrapped up with her work or with her intellection as it's projected outwards into something that will allow her to transcend herself. So what I think is interesting about losing ground is it actually is rather jagged and avowedly arty. There are ways in which losing ground actually is enthusiastically avant-garde and definitely wants to project an image of itself as sort of new wave. Um, I know that Romare was very important to her. Mm -hmm. I think there are obvious Godardian touches, at least with the editing, but it's true that the, in some ways it is kind of like a Romarian moral tale and that it's a relatively circumscribed look at a particular romance as it bleeds outwards, but only slightly. But another thing is that Kathleen Collins's fiction, which was uh, discovered by her daughter, has recently been published by Echo. Mm -hmm. And you see that some of her fictional works, I mean, they're just short stories, nothing of novel length, but her fictional works sometimes take the form of treatments for films or they have dramatic dialogue and stage directions. And I like the idea that in the same way that Personal Problems seeks to muddle the avant-garde film or the art house film with the soap opera, that Kathleen Collins is also recognizing that there's something about both fiction and about avant-garde cinema that's limiting and needs to bleed into another genre in order to fully express mm -hmm. what I think is a sociological predicament, which is you have the black intellectual female who is shot in what I think is a Godardian way because there's so much frontality. Mm -hmm. I mean, the way that the characters become silhouettes punched against a landscape or any other kind of... Uh, symbolic background such that everything is flattened into or flattened into a concept and yet precisely what the drama is is that she wants to exceed this concept of herself she doesn't want to be viewed as simply somebody who's highly competent who's very intelligent she wants her three-dimensional sensuality to be made apparent and so right. she's always breaking out of precisely the filmic techniques mm -hmm. to become a kind of more rounded novelistic character I and mean, maybe i'm reading too much into the fact that her fiction clearly borrows from dramatic or filmic techniques but you can see that the protagonist sarah is unhappy with the mise-en-scene mm -hmm. and seeks to change it and which is of course a, a kind of allegory for what's happening behind the camera as well mm -hmm. that you have Kathleen Collins, somebody who, as a black woman, has been represented ad nauseum, though not in a necessarily respectful way, who seeks to make her own images. And of course, the first thing that she dramatizes is a woman trying to escape the image of herself. It's extraordinarily tidy, actually, yeah. when you look at it that way. Yeah. You know, she is sexualized to a certain extent by her students, but then she chooses to act in this student film in a very theatrical way, not in a way that is actually, you know, and do this dance that's, you know, this sort of like uh, music video slash stagey dance. And like, and she pulls out the gun, and she shoots. It is very um, neat, as you say, but also you, you feel it nonetheless. Like you feel this frustration throughout the film. Both films end on a note of explicit, if this is not a contradiction in terms, explicit ambivalence mm -hmm. that, as you say, she shoots the gun within the film, within a film. Right. And it, she has a look of 
remorse or at best confusion on her face and the film abruptly ends. Yeah. It's like, I don't, to what extent is this film within a film indicative of her emotional life? To what extent Mm -hmm. are the characters willing to recognize that fact? It's left indeterminate and you just kind of burrow or go further and further into the kind of the matriarchal dolls of social scenarios in the same way that as you were saying personal problems ends with a kind of ambivalent take or at least a sweet resignation (laughs) what i think is funny is that in in neither of the films is redemption an actual possibility right like these people to whatever i mean with their extramarital affairs always hope to transcend what it is that they are. Not that what they are is, is essential, mm-hmm. but it's relatively static. Um, and their lunge to overcome some aspect of their lives is destined not for tragedy, but for disappointments of varying degrees and intensities. Mm-hmm. Um, that in itself is already moving towards a certain kind of filmic idiom. I feel like that's really Hollywood, actually. Mm-hmm. I, I, maybe I'm wrong about this, but there, there's a way in which... It reminds me of like, I don't know, like Kramer versus Kramer. I don't know. <laughs> but there is like a, I wonder if reconciling themselves to the way life is actually lived or making sure that what's represented on the screen is a mature reckoning with the actual limits of their lives and deriving some sort of bittersweet satisfaction from that is a way of signaling that black middle class or black lower middle class life actually has a lot in common with the white middle class stories that were a staple of film and TV of the time. You know, these are films that are in dialogue with popular images and popular narratives, not just sort of providing an alternative, but pointing out what's wrong with those dominant narratives while it's sort of trying to do its own thing and come up with a language for its own thing. And, you know, there is that debate continues today. There doesn't seem to be some sort of universally agreed upon different language for these things. And you can see it in the films of like, in third cinema, people like Debridgel Job Mambetti or Jean-Pierre Piccolo or even people like Abbas Kiarostami, where there is this indeterminate ending where it's almost like given over to someone else to figure out. And it's not even the viewer. It's not even the viewer up to the viewer to figure it out. It's just sort of like, you know, it's not the end of Red Desert, let's say. It's not It's not somebody looking sad and confused. It's something completely different. I like Red Desert. I also like Red <laughs> Desert, too. I'm not, yeah. put, I'm not <laughs> shitting know, on know, Red Desert. Yeah. This is pro-Antonioni. Um, <laughs> out of any sort of profession Reed could have given her. Obviously, the film shrinks from an explicitly feminist position, but what you do see is the challenge of a wife and mother whose social role is that of caregiving, who also has the profession of caregiving. Mm -hmm. And seeing the way that that emotion and sense of emotional extension actually is routinized, I think is really important. The film begins with an account of her mother, who was a domestic worker. And Linda was Johnny May's mother's white charge. And she says at the beginning of the film, she didn't like the idea that her mother was a mother somewhere else. And she actually goes as far as to interpret her own circumstances in a political way. She says, black children aren't allowed to just be children. I had a key around my neck. I let myself in. I made myself lunch and I got back to school on time because the neighbors would see if I was late. Um, And what I think is interesting about that little episode is that it shades perfectly into 
her own role as a nurse's aide. Mm -hmm. Somebody who has to act as this improvised parent or improvised caregiving woman um, for people who are not technically her children and yet with whom she has some affinity. I think her role as a nurse's aide and dealing with people who are on drugs or who have bullet wounds, it does stretch our conception of what it means to belong to a people. Are her people, her immediate family, are her people the people who look like her? In a sense, she feels very removed from New York because like Della, there are some things about South Carolina that she likes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but being thrust into a scenario in which you are forced to exhibit compassion for somebody based on something that you share, obviously the fact that she's a nurse's aide means it's a professional responsibility, but I think that the the symbolism of her working in Harlem Hospital, which is this iconic uh, institution of Black New York life, uh, which is right across the street from the Schomburg Library. My mom actually worked in Harlem Hospital before I was born, and she told me about the Black celebrities who would sometimes show up, like Bill Cosby, back when he was (laughs) in the public's good graces. Mm. But... Yeah, no, but I, I, I think that her, her role as a nurse's aide really just forces her to reckon with the fact that as a black woman, she also has to serve a certain social role that she acknowledges to be taxing. I mean, she says repeatedly throughout the film, I work so hard every day, people are sick, and you realize it's not just the actual labor or the physical exhaustion that comes from being on your feet while everyone else is asleep, but also the sense that something is being taken from you or that mm-hmm. something your sovereignty is somehow being violated that your sense of who and what you are is bleeding into your responsibilities to other people in a way that I think is perfectly perfectly rendered in her status as a care worker she's emotionally involved in these people she's having an affair with her family giving the care to these people that she may not be giving to her family or it provides sort of like this doubling where she can do it both places and you know, you never see her lose her shit at work. She only loses her shit at home. And you understand why. You certainly understand, like, okay, her brother is a mess. Her her sister-in-law is a mess. Her father-in-law is a mess. But yet, her personal life is a mess. But whatever is happening professionally is also is just, it's taking as much of a toll, but we never get to see all of that because that's not where this lies. And again, and that again ties back to this idea that this is a unique work about working people because they're like real working people who if something happens, it has economic repercussions. There is a concern about how am I going to get by economically, emotionally when I am being asked to do so much and that she still has time for poetry is a really I think smart choice and that you know, just because you are sort of working all the time, it doesn't mean that part of you doesn't exist and can't be nurtured in different ways. I think that the I think that the poetry is a kind of amazing turn, mm-hmm. um, and that her poetry is basically pastoral. Oh yeah. Also, <laughs> it's like this is a, a longing for a previous life. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, no, it's um, a part that struck me about her poetry is that she reads it to the man she's having an affair with. Um, who, because he's a musician, she already feels a certain kind of artistic affinity for, clearly. Mm-hmm. And she reads him a few lines, and then she says, mm, I haven't finished it, I just wrote that. I'll finish it later. 
And then he says, you amaze me. <laughs> but just the idea that it's not that she's produced a wonderfully burnished aesthetic object, but this is just part of the rhythm of her life and that it's necessarily unfinished. I think is it was a very moving moment to me. Well, we'll end it there. But before we do, it would be great if we each talked about a film that we'd seen recently that we've liked. Speaking of another great black filmmaker, I saw Roel Peck's The Young Karl Marx, which is so good. It is extremely my shit. It's just right up my alley. Um, it's like this five-year period in Karl Marx's life when he's first getting to know Friedrich Engels and um, basically like the time leading up to them writing the communist manifesto and you actually get to see them like at a dark table and they're writing on this little like production line of making the communist manifesto and they're like boogeyman no 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 specter a specter <laughs> is so funny there's and then like even the moment marks and angles meet each other is like a buddy comedy they're like well i thought you sucked well I, you know actually I really liked what you did there. And then they go out <laughs> drinking and then you see like Mark's barfing and in like an alleyway. Oh, it's so good. It is incredible. I, I think it, it is good. I, I really like it because it's very accessible to people who have spent time with his theory. It is like a materialist telling of his life. But then also if you don't know anything about that, you will definitely enjoy it. And uh, maybe you'll also become a class trader. <laughs> but speaking of class... <laughs> I thought that Itania was amazing. Itania's attitude towards suffering is innovative, to say yes, the least. I agree. I've never agree. seen personal tribulation represented as the, the sick, banal comedy that it is. <laughs> um, and that also resolves itself into political categories in a way that isn't flat footed, mm -hmm. um, but also doesn't shrink from the actual repercussions. Yeah. I mean, these people self identify as white trash and are punished for it. Mm -hmm. I thought it was great. I, I was I was actually kind of living within the universe of the film uh, long afterwards. No, me me too, man. I uh, I loved it, and Molly Haskell loved it too. So it's a great movie. Also, fun fact: she, when she did the triple axel, she was skating to the Batman theme song. So Tanya Harding is a cinephile. Respect her. <laughs> but thank you. Thank you so much. This was great. You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rippold, with music by Greg Anji. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine, or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, and Kindle at filmcomet.com slash app. Clara's camera is charming and funny, says Slant Magazine, one of Hong's most sharply written films. The Hollywood Reporter adds, Hubert's comic vein is not tapped often enough. Claire's camera opens March 9th exclusively at the Film Society of Lincoln Center.